this is the year 2009, the year of Revelation here at Bridgeway. And that means that we're going to be looking at it not only by studying the book of Revelation throughout this year, but we're also going to be looking at Revelation in a grander concept. Kind of the idea of Revelation means to look at things in a brand new way. Have your eyes opened and see things from a new perspective. Well, in doing so, part of that is studying the book. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever gone through a lesson or a study in the book of Revelation, but it's rather complicated. So, what we decided to do, because we had so much interest in this book, is that we didn't want to launch it at the beginning of the year while we were still in this building. Here's why. A lot of people want to bring their friends and family, and we have no room. So, that's not exactly going to work. So, I realize that in order to study it properly, there's a couple series I need to take you through before we dive into it so that you're prepped to understand it. Two of those series are, number one, we need to understand the history of the Christian church. We need to understand what happened after Jesus said, go into all the world, and how we end up in Revelation. There's a big gap there. We need to learn about the last 2,000 years of history. That's one thing. Partly because when you study Revelation, a lot of the views have to do with historical events. If you don't know those history events... You have no idea what the interpretation is. You have no idea why people are saying what they're saying. The second uh, series that we need to go through is a two-week series where I'm going to take an Old Testament prophecy that's already been fulfilled. We'll take that, take one week examining the prophecy, then look at what happened. And we'll say, hey, if it said this and this is what happened, maybe we can read Revelation in a slightly different manner. So I have two series I'm going to be dropping to you over the next five weeks, and then we will blow it wide open to a community launch in our new building and invite everybody to come join us to really study it for the majority of the year. So hopefully that'll kind of work out for you. If not, well, sorry. Okay. So that's basically what I got planned right now. And I could scrap it and do something totally different, but that's what I'm on right now. So Here's a couple things that you need to know about today. First of all, let's begin with some Bibles. Please raise your hand if you don't have a Bible and we'll bring one to you. Brian's working in the lobby there and uh, Casey and Crystal will be working in here. So keep your hands up until you get one uh, because we're going to be beginning a little bit in Scripture. But I am doing a grand experiment by doing this series. I'm not a big topical guy. Uh, I don't usually uh, do that. I usually teach through the books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. That's kind of my deal. Well, in trying to explain church history, we step outside of Scripture and begin to see what God has been doing throughout the millennia. Now, in doing that, I get a little bit less confident. You give me the Word of God, I will drive it home and I will tell you exactly that I believe that to be truth. When you start talking about history, there's a lot of opinion that gets involved. Well, many of you have not studied church history, and so you're going to look at this and you're going to go, gosh, this is going to be extremely boring. All right, there's two reasons why it's not going to be boring. Number one, I yell a lot. Number two, I wore a really bright shirt. Therefore, I'm expecting everyone to stay awake during the whole time, all right? I don't wear this shirt for no reason, okay? Now, the other thing is I need your feedback on this. I really want to know. Now, unfortunately, I have I asked for feedback last night, and I've had five, six people give me feedback. 
only one was negative. I know that's not true. There are more that are that are saying, you know what? I hated that whole lesson. I I need to hear that kind of stuff too. All right. I need you to be honest with me and tell me what you think about it because I need to assess how long we're going to be in this series. We have a certain plan, but I would love to tailor it according to what you are being benefited by and what you're not. So anyway, make sure to email me and let me know your feedback one way or another. We good? Those are all my announcements. Let's dive into this stuff. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verse 41. It is page 772 and the Bible's handed to you. Acts chapter 2, verse 41, page 772. Also, look at the handout sheet that was given to you and we will begin. I entitled today's message From the Cradle to the Grave because we're going to be examining it from the infancy of the Christian church to one of its most embarrassing history periods of all time to where you would look and you say it started with so much promise and it ended in so much garbage what happened how did we get from here to here and so we're going to be examining early christianity up to the uh, dawn of the reformation or the eve of the reformation and Church history is valuable for a number of reasons. Not only do you see God's hand move and watch the Holy Spirit course through his church, but there's one primary thing I think that is important, and that's the fill in the blank in front of you. It's this. Church history shows us Christ's faithfulness to his promise to never leave us. Church history shows us Christ's faithfulness to his promise to never leave us. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Is that true? Was he with the church throughout all these centuries? Was he there during the dark ages? Was he there during the time when political corruption and the church became psycho? Where was Jesus? Where was the Holy Spirit in all of that? These are things that we need to consider. But one thing I think that we need to understand before we launch is you're going to hear a lot of what I share today and you're going to go, oh, that's just the Catholics. We're Protestant. Why are you sharing that? Well, it's an extremely ignorant view. Catholic history is our history. You understand? Up until the Reformation, everybody's Catholic. That's kind of how it works. So just like when we study Jewish history, we've been adopted into their family. Their history now becomes our history. In the same way, when you begin to learn about where the Pope came from and how this worked out and how this went crazy over here, that is our history even as Protestants, as we sit here, and many of you maybe even uh, would say, actually, I'm not a Protestant, Lance, I'm actually a Catholic, and you end up attending here. This is just your home of worship. Understand, this is all of our history that we're studying together, so there's no room to throw stones. This is everybody's family, and we're just looking through the family album as we go backwards. But what we realize is after we finished this Matthew series last week, after 26 parts, we realized that it ended with a challenge. The challenge was go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Did they do it? Well, we sit back here 2,000 years later and go, well, yeah, I mean, the fact that, that North America is largely a Christian based continent. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. And the fact that America is the most powerful nation in the world, and they seem to proclaim knowing about Christ, that obviously it worked. 
but what if you're that little band of fishermen? What if you're the starting guys and you're in the Middle East and you're going, wait a second, how in the world am I going to get this outside my own world? How am I ever going to tell anybody? How is God ever going to blow it wide open so the whole world will have an opportunity to hear? When we study these first couple passages, I need you to not think as a 21st century American. I need you to think as a first century Jew. That now that you know that Jesus Christ is your Messiah and Savior, how in the world can we tell everybody else the good news? Well, Acts, the book of Acts, if you remember, there's four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Do you all realize that Luke wrote two books? They didn't just write one, that there's a gospel of Luke, and then he also wrote what? Acts. So it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, as you go through the Bible. Well, Luke wrote two of those. He wrote, this is what Jesus did, and then after Jesus was gone, this is what happened. The book of Acts is a New Testament history book. And the first half tells all about what uh, Peter was doing and the exciting things that the apostles did. And then the second half is all about who? Paul. And Paul then ends up writing 13 of the New Testament books, at least. So you get a little bit of a history. The problem is the book of Acts ends with Paul still alive. Peter still alive. What happened with these guys? Did they keep going on? Did the ministry keep flourishing? For Acts opens with a promise, and the promise is this. Jesus said, I want you to remain in Jerusalem until power comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses into Judea. Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. In other words, I'm telling you right now, I promise you that we are going worldwide. Well, sure enough, Pentecost hit. Y'all remember the story of Pentecost? Well, that is recorded in Acts chapter 2. There's about 120 of these Christian Jews. I shouldn't even call them Christians. They weren't called Christians till later. A bunch of Messianic Jews are hanging out together. And they're sitting up in this upper room. And all of a sudden, this mighty sound of rushing wind just starts drawing a crowd. It hits them. Tongues of flames light up on everybody's heads. All of a sudden, they start speaking in different languages they don't even know. They step out into the streets where a massive crowd has come to see what's going on. And they start proclaiming the word of God in the various languages. Because all these Jews from all over the world had come into Jerusalem for the special festival. And they were all there to hear it in their native language. All of a sudden, Peter, the same guy we've been talking about that denied Christ three times, what a wimp, blah, blah, blah. He now, emboldened by the Holy Spirit, knowing that his Savior, Jesus Christ, has ascended to the right hand of God, steps up and speaks boldly one of the most powerful sermons of all time. And he begins to shout out to this crowd, Rest assured, this Jesus Christ, whom you have crucified, is Lord and Savior. They cry, it says they were cut to the heart and they cried out, if we've killed the Savior, what must we do? He said, all of you, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And that is where we pick up our story today. Acts chapter 2, verse 41, page 772. Let's just pray for the word this morning. Heavenly Father, would you open our eyes Open our hearts that we might receive not only your word, but follow the way that you have moved over the last 1,500 years, 2,000 years, Jesus, that we might know you better and give you more glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Those who accepted his message, the Bible says, were baptized, and about how many were added? 
3,000. That's church growth. That is 120 to 3120. That's pretty extreme. Now, the majority of them did not stay in town. They all went home. They were all visiting. So now all of a sudden they go all over the place into different countries. Now, we always think of Paul being the only evangelist that goes out there and breaks the new ground. As a matter of fact, it was these folks, the no-name folks, the regular folks that heard the message, got saved, and went home and started talking about it. As a matter of fact, when Paul walked into a lot of these areas, there were already people that knew the gospel existing there. He just set up more structure. So it's the regular people, it's people like you and me that began to spread the gospel all over the world. But it moves on. What was the early church like? Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Daily conversions. This thing begins to pick up, but make no mistake, it's still a Jewish thing. As a matter of fact, they considered themselves fulfilled Jews, so they kept going to the temple. They'd still go to synagogue. They'd do all the things that Jews still did. Up until 100 A.D., all the churches always met in homes. Now, once persecution began to hit after that, they began to move into caves. But understand, there were no buildings till 200. Not until 300 did we start getting fancier services like the kind of ideas that we have now. It took a while for that to ramp up. But sure enough, things began to move in a very natural fashion. People began to add in and they began to call the apostles kind of the leaders. But the apostles eventually all got killed. Do you remember that? Church tradition tells us, and a lot of it's very, very fuzzy. A lot of it is speculation. A lot of it is probably bogus. But you know what? We pick up a few things. The only ones that are kind of solid is that we know Paul wrote that he went to Rome. And then he was beheaded there. We know that pretty well from tradition. We know that most evidence shows that Peter went to Rome and actually became uh, the head of the church there. Those about all that we know. But what about the other guys? Do you all realize they had to hand off to somebody? They had to hand off their leadership. All the rest of the guys, everyone but John was killed. John was exiled on the island of Patmos. And then in some tradition says he got off and was able to go do some other ministry. But in general, all these guys died. So who'd they hand off to? Well, there's guys that are in the early church. John handed off to a guy with an incredibly stupid name. His name's Polycarp. Okay. Now, I don't know if you're going to have more kids. I'm just saying, don't name him Polycarp because I will make fun of them. And I'm a pastor. This guy, he ends up getting martyred, and he's, he's an incredible guy, and he had some interesting views, but this is the second generation that comes out. Well, and then, sure enough, Peter in Rome, he hands off as the bishop of Rome to a guy named Clement, and these guys take on leadership, and the generation begins to shift over. Well, they start setting up structures, and they're trying to figure out what they're doing, because they're kind of making it up as they go along. This is all brand new to them. But in A.D. 70, 35 years about after Jesus died, remember the Romans got sick and tired of the Jews. 
So they shut down and destroyed the temple and wiped it out. Well, that scattered things north and south. Well, then the Christians moved their shop over to Antioch. And then they started going east and west. And things just started spreading out. But some of these early guys had some very interesting views. Some of the second generationers had some very interesting views. And certain things began to come into the church. Some are very common to us. For example, there's an early writing, one of the earliest writings we have that was written between 90 to 110 AD. That's pretty ancient. We have that document. It's called the Didache. The Didache said a couple interesting things. It said, baptism is only legit if it's by immersion. Okay, that means you get dunked under. Then the question is asked in the document, what if you don't have enough water? And they said, pour three cups of water over their head. Just get them super wet. That was the idea. Three cups of water and you're good. And you read that they had, they put in a bunch of different structure, but they also began for the first time to write that it's okay to have communion on one day other than Passover. Because you have to understand, a lot of people ask me questions. Hey, Lance, why do you guys do communion only once a month? Well, do you realize the early church only did it once a year? Okay, well, it wasn't until the Didache that they started going, I think it's okay if we do it more often. They first started doing it on other days rather than just once a year. But then another document came out. This document came out about 130 A.D. and it was called the Shepherd of Hermas. And it brought in some very, very different teaching. This is very early on. And here's three significant things that it said. Three significant teachings. Number one, although baptism doesn't save you, you're not fully regenerated until you are baptized. That's the first time that ever came out. Number two, it's the first mention of the phrase penance. Now, penance, y'all know what penance is? A lot of you didn't grow up Catholic. Anybody know what penance is? Penance is a sin eraser. Okay? What happens is if you do something bad, you got to do something good, and that will erase out the sin. Okay? So penance is basically paying for it. That started coming in. And then a phrase of an interesting place suddenly shows up called purgatory. You ever heard of purgatory? What is purgatory? It is this belief that no one knew what to do with when your sins are cleansed. Everyone read the Bible and they said, so I get it. So once Jesus died for your sins, when you get baptized, all your past sins are cleansed. What if you sin again? What do we do with those? Because if I sin later, we only got cleansed from the past. What about our future? They didn't understand it. So they began to reason it out and figure it out. And they said, well, there's some way you can't bring any sin into heaven. So clearly there's got to be somewhere where you can burn it off. That's called purgatory. So you got a halfway point where after you die, you go into purgatory and you suffer a little bit, pay your penance, then you can get into heaven clean. These concepts started spinning very, very early. Well, what happened? Well, sure enough, persecution began to hit, hit very strongly. Up to 200 AD, here was the rule in Rome. Think of Christians like rats, okay? Which is kind of like, I know they're there, they're kind of creepy, but you know what? Until you see them, if you see them, kill them. But I mean, in general, don't chase them down, okay? That was kind of the rule. Well, after 200, a couple guys really got in power and they started changing things. Two emperors specifically, Emperor Nero and Emperor Domitian. Those are two really, really bad guys. What they did is all the persecution that you think of when you hear old stories. For example, those were the ones that covered Christians while they're alive with tar and pitch, which is what we think of as asphalt. 
You cover them and then you light them aflame because it's flammable. So while they're living, you just light them up. <laughs> they become a huge bonfire while they're living. Stick them up on sticks, shove them on sticks, wrap them in animal clothing, throw them into the ring, allow the wild beast to eat them. This was a horrifying, dark, dark time for Christians. So when you think about persecution, when that starts happening, everyone starts scattering even more, right? So Christianity keeps getting out further and further. Well, along that way, Rome was getting bigger. And as Rome began to expand, they realized they had too much power. So they would break out their empire into the east and the west. They actually had two emperors where they would do one on one side and one on the other. Well, the church did the same thing. There all of a sudden began to be an eastern church. And a Western church. As a matter of fact, there were five major big dog cities. Jerusalem, Alexandria, Antioch, Constantinople, and Rome. Only one is in the West. All four of the big dog cities are all in the East. So the, the shift of Christianity is all over in the East. And big things are happening. But Rome is still a significant factor. They're going in the West. And then... Everything changed with one man. In 272 to 337, a man was born and raised and reigned and led the Roman Empire in the West. And his name was Constantine. You ever heard that guy's name before? Maybe you remember back from, what, seventh grade? Constantine got saved. Now, I want to make this personal. We've just gone through a political season, and I heard a lot of information from Christians about what they thought should happen during this last political season, right? Everybody's got an opinion, right? And here's what I kept hearing. Oh, I wish our next president, I sure hope he's a Christian. And I would be so awesome if we began to be able to legislate Christianity in our society. I wish this would pass and this would pass and we could do this because then everything would be awesome. Really? You sure about that? Because that happened. This man who's running the Roman Empire becomes a Christian later in his life. And Constantine changed everything. Here's what happened. The first thing he did was called the Edict of Milan. He stopped all persecution of Christians and began to reverse the process. Listen to this list. He puts Christians in power. He exempts clergy from taxes. He emancipates all Christian slaves. He abolishes all pagan customs. And he shuts down the whole kingdom on Sundays in observance of worship. Everyone's thinking, this is awesome. Right on. Look at this. Now Christianity's really getting a foothold. This is so great. And now everybody's a Christian. Well, that was a problem. Once Christianity gets in vogue, once Christianity is at the top down, then the only way to go up the corporate ladder is to be a what? Christian. As long as you want to move up in any business when the government is Christian, you better be Christian or you're not going anywhere. Now everybody calls themselves a Christian. Now you have no idea who's in and who's out. It is now so secularized. Now it's political. Now everybody does it. Now it's no longer about Jesus. It's about being part of the crowd. And it began to spread out and change things. And here, during that time, all these views moved up in the church. Communion now was viewed as imparting salvation to people for the first time. You understand those little communion elements that we do? Now, that saves you. 
And it's called sacerdotal, which means you can't take it yourself. Someone has to hand it to you that is the proper person. Secondly, giving alms, tithing, now gives you spiritual benefit and power. Oh, that's interesting. Then what happens? Holy places are a big deal and everyone starts claiming their holy places. Saints show up. And there's big discussions about who's a saint and what saints can do and they can pray on your behalf and all that begins to show up. Priests begin to be seen as mediators between God and man. And the sole right of forgiveness of sins is given to the bishop. Now remember, the bishop's just the pastor. The bishop, all these guys, Peter was called a bishop. Clement was called a bishop. They're all called bishops. That's not a scary term. Bishop meant head pastor. But do you understand that as just in a normal church setting, when the bigger churches grow up, the littler churches come into their region. Well, the one bishop looks over all the churches. It becomes regional. Well, then so-and-so gets bigger and -and so-and-so gets bigger. Well, all of a sudden, the bishop is given the right to forgive sins on earth. Nobody else. That's interesting. And then another shift takes place. Seems so insignificant. People start interpreting the Bible as an allegory. You guys remember what allegory means? Allegory means it's not what it looks like. It's something deeper. So, for example, if you read the historical story in the Old Testament of Joseph going to Egypt, he didn't really live. He didn't really go to Egypt. It means something deeper. The minute that happened, guess what occurred? Now, the scriptures are no longer understandable for the general people. You are no longer allowed to read on your own because I have to tell you what it means. Do you understand the big shift in power that just occurred? Now the Bible is not just the Bible. It's this big mysterious book and you don't know what you're reading. So you have to come to me and I'll tell you what it means. Ah, now some of Constantine's stuff stayed. Some of it got booted out. But let me ask you, was it good? Well, Lance, I mean, bad stuff started being legislated against and everybody heard about Christianity. That's awesome. That's true. But what about the fact that they started coercing people to become Christians by power? What about that? What about the fact that churches became corporations and lost all the essence of worship? What about the fact that clergy became businessmen? They begin to climb ladders. They begin focusing on property rights and wealth. What about the fact that Christianity was so secularized you couldn't tell who was into Jesus and who wasn't? Is that positive? Do you understand that the Christian church becomes strongest and grows the most under persecution? When we are the big dogs, we are terrible. We don't grow. We get lazy and we give up and we become corrupt. It's always been the case. So what happened next in reaction to all this garbage that started coming in and all this secularization, the monastic movement rose up. What's the monastic movement? The monks and the nuns. Everyone just started pulling out. I don't want to be a part of the church. The church is garbage. The church has so mixed up with so much other stuff. I don't even want to be a part of it. And all these awesome people withdrew and went into the desert. And they began to do all these amazing teachings, but they were leaving the church and it was getting worse and worse. One of those guys that went out there was a man by the name of Augustine. Have you ever heard of Augustine? Very influential guy. I mean, as a matter of fact, most of what we understand about the Trinity came through Augustine. He wrote on it for 16 years of his life. And he also changed the view of sacraments as opposed to being giving people salvation. He said, hold on, hold on, hold on. No, no, no. 
No, no, no. It's Jesus's stuff. And we're just reminding ourselves of what Jesus did. Well, that was pretty countercultural. But then he wrote a little paper, an article that to him was probably no big deal. But it changed history. His view was called the just war theory. Anybody ever heard that? The just war theory says war is okay as long as the guys doing it are the good guys. What do you think that's going to set up? The Crusades, right? Now we have the most brilliant theologian of the time saying war is okay as long as we're the good guys. The ends justify the means. That was a big shift. But then what happened? Well, Sure enough, East and West continue to separate. And in the East, the church begins to develop into what's called the Orthodox Church, the Coptic Church. Anybody ever heard of the Greek Orthodox Church? Okay, that's the same thing. It just means the Greek version of the Orthodox Church. Now, we don't know a lot of them. If I said, how many have heard of Catholics? Everybody raises their hand. If I said, how many think of Orthodox? It's only half of us. Because the, uh, the Orthodox was all in the East and they were pretty quiet for a bunch of reasons. They were having to deal with the onslaught of Islam. Islam was attacking at the time. So it quiets down. Meanwhile, the Imperial Church in the West is growing by leaps and bounds. But then we hit the medieval period. And a man rises up to power by the name of Leo I. Now let me explain what happens here. When the head of the churches and the regions are called the bishop, the most important bishop gets the most power. The most important city in the world at that time was what? Rome. He's the bishop of Rome. Pope Leo I was the first man to claim authority over the whole church, and he was the first pope. Now, the, fir- the pope right after him was a man by the name of Pope Gregory I. Pretty good guy, but he had some weird views at least weird from our perspective. Here's what he began to teach. He said, I believe in the inspiration of Scripture. Scripture is absolute truth. However, on equal par is the tradition of the church. So what we do and what we tell you to do is equal to what the Bible says. Ooh, that's a big difference, right? Then he begins to tell us confession to a priest is the way that you handle it. You can't go to God directly. You've got to ricochet off a priest. That becomes a part of it. Then communion shifts in value. It now becomes the death of Jesus literally every time you take communion. Every time Jesus dies all over again. And it helps not only the people here in this world, but all the people that are waiting in purgatory. You understand the big change in communion? Are you guys watching this movement? Then what happens? Well, as I told you, the Eastern and West continues to separate. But during that time, a man rose to power by the name of Charlemagne. On Christmas Day, 800 AD, he became the first Holy Roman Emperor of the empire. The whole idea of king and pope began to mix. And it begins no longer a separation of church and state, but absolute tie-in. He began to spread Christianity by force for the first time. Between the years of 768 and 814, he led 50 war campaigns for the church. That's crazy. If all of a sudden I said, you guys, all right, strap up, we're going to go beat up somebody. Wouldn't you guys think that's odd? (laughs) If I just said, now the church, everybody make sure that you get some type of machine gun because we're going to go take over somebody. You kind of go, whoa, 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 what are we doing? What are we doing? What are you talking about? 
everything is, is different and we enter into the dark ages. You guys all heard that phrase? The dark ages in there, the popes got so secularized, so political, so messed up that even the church was horrified by them. It, it's like power out of control. Things started going crazy. As a matter of fact, Pope John the seventh was charged with piracy, rape, sodomy and murder. That's your big dog Christian guy. Nice. Does that make sense? It's no longer about Christianity. It's about politics. It's no longer about Jesus. It's about power. And then comes down some of the biggest fights between church and state. A man comes to the throne to becoming pope by the name of Pope Gregory VII this time. The last one was the first. Pope Gregory VII comes to power. Now, what's interesting is the church had taken the power of choosing the pope out of the hands of the people. And said, let's have one little group of guys pick the Pope. Well, when Pope Gregory VII stood up, they gave him the power to pick the group of guys. You go, I don't get it. The Pope gets to pick the guys to pick the Pope. <laughs> Y'all understand why you can't get them out? Is now, all of a sudden, it's kind of like, oh, I get to choose you and you get to choose me. That works out real well. <laughs> right? So now it becomes kind of a you go in until you die. He launched off what was called Dictus Pupae. Does that not sound gross? Now, it's Latin, but it's dictus pupae, right? Here's what it means. He said, the Roman church answers to God alone, no one else. And I, as the pope, should have control over all priests everywhere. That's a significant shift. Well, then he launched what was called Article 22. Article 22 said one significant thing. Check this out. There is no error in the Roman church. It's inerrant. That means we don't make mistakes. You argue with us, guess who's right? We're right. We're always right. Now, that's a big deal to say that, that someone is inerrant. Well, now all of a sudden he gets challenged. This guy comes to the throne, King Henry IV. King Henry IV defies Pope Gregory VII. And he starts going, you think that you're a big dog. You know what? I'm the king. I run everything. So I don't care who you little church guy with a funky hat. I don't care who you are. I'm going head to head with you and I can do whatever I want. Pope Gregory VII said, really? That's interesting. Oh, I just shut off your salvation. Now what are you going to do? Oh, whoops. King Henry IV was so scared, he came back to grovel at his front doorstep and Pope Gregory VII left the most powerful man in the empire sitting out in the snow for three days. He's like, really? How much you want it? Really? That's right. Guess who's more powerful than you are? I guess that's me. Uh-oh. Now, right after, you find out that King Henry IV ended up grabbing a bunch of military guys and came in and stormed it and just kicked the Pope out. And you thought, oh, well, maybe everything got back to normal. Nope. Next Pope step in, Pope Innocent III. All you got to do is start out with a name like that. I'm Innocent. And you're like, I'm not so sure. Now, Pope Innocent... Interesting guy. He referred to himself as the vicar of Christ, the supreme authority on earth. He said, because Jesus said to Peter, I what your name is rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and I will give you the keys. When Peter got all the control, he has passed it down all the way to me. And God gave him the power to rule 
earth and man. And as long as government has men in it, guess who runs them? Me. And we get to the height of the power. Well, that was challenged. King Philip of France, his wife dies and he wants to get a new wife. So he marries this young gal. And then he goes, ah, I don't like her. Right. After about a year, he's like, ah, she's broken. I don't like her. I want another one. So he goes to the local church. He said, hey, can you guys annul this really quick? I got to go get another bride. And they're like, hey, no problem, king. Right. And they give him the chance. And all of a sudden, Pope Innocent III hears about it. He's like, what did you just do? Well, I just got a new wife. You guys went ahead and cleared my record and I just got another one. He goes, oh, no, you didn't. Did you ask me? No, I don't need to ask you. I'm king. Oh, really? Well, actually, you're going to answer to me. Go get your old wife back. No, I'm not going to go get my old wife back. No, you are. No, I'm not. No, really, you are. Power struggle. He said, you know what? I don't care who you are. I'm the king. I'm doing what I want. He said, really? Shut down every church in the whole kingdom. Every church in all the Roman Empire was barred. He said, no one gets salvation. Just like that. Because now, remember, the view is if you can't take communion, you're not saved. If you don't get baptized, you're not saved. So if you can't get in church, you're not saved. Shut all the doors. Everyone loses their salvation. Nobody gets it until he turns around. How much pressure is that? Guess who caved? King Philip took the old wife back. Do you understand the height of the battles that are going on? And do you understand why the Pope became such a big deal? Unfortunately, what this all led to was the darkest mark on our history record called the Crusades. For 150 years was bloodshed, allegedly under the Christian banner. The first crusade, there were eight of them. One of them was all kids. Did you know that? All children went over. They all got slaughtered. But the point was they ran a whole one called the Pure in Heart Movement. Okay. A million people went on the first crusade to go over and start slaughtering Muslims. Well done, guys. How embarrassing is that? How horrifying is that? We go over to take over the Holy Land. We're going to liberate you, right? No, you're going to go over and kill people and you're going to use religion as your rallying cry. It was never about Jesus. It was always about politics. It was always about power. It was always about trying to get something else beyond what you have. And for 150 years, nothing but garbage. Wave after wave after wave of failure. I don't believe God was in that. That's not Christianity. That's not Jesus. Nevertheless, we kept saying that's what the church does. And during that time, one interesting council came up. It was called the Lateran Council of 1215, and it legislated three doctrines. Number one, annual confession to the priest is demanded. You must confess to the priest once a year. Number two, you must attend Mass at least once a year if you want to remain. And number three, transubstantiation occurs. And it is codified in law. Which is, when you take communion, it turns into the literal body and blood of Jesus. Not, hey, symbolically we're taking these. It will transfer. The minute it hits your tongue, it becomes the flesh of Jesus Christ himself. The wine that you drink will transfer into blood that you will now drink. That is the reason why you will notice that in many Catholic churches today, when you take communion, you're not allowed to touch it. 
Have you guys noticed that? They will put it on your tongue and the priest will hand it out to you. The purpose is you are not allowed to touch the body of Christ. I've purified myself, he said, and therefore I will hand it to you. I will give you the cup, but you are not allowed to touch it. You guys understand why certain things are occurring today? Well, sure enough, the church just gets so corrupt, even the church is sick of them. I mean, the church is sick of the popes. They're sick of all this garbage. And it just keeps getting worse. And one last movement rises up before the Reformation, and that is this. The rise of scholasticism. You go, what's scholasticism? You ever heard the phrase apologetics? Apologetics is reasoning your faith, defending your faith. The idea of, if you guys think about Lee Strobel and all these guys that write these books, Josh McDowell, all those, that's all apologetics. The guy who kicked that all off was a man by the name of Sir Thomas Aquinas. Sir Thomas Aquinas went into the monastery at age five, entered the Dominicans at age 19, and he wrote... We have so much stuff that he wrote. Some of Theologica, he wrote 3,000 articles and the majority of what the Catholic Church believes today. But he is the one that began to argue the existence of God from reason. So today, we have a lot of Plato and Aristotle in our views. Most people, when they argue about Christianity, are actually arguing from a Greek perspective, almost largely because of Sir Thomas Aquinas. And he will hang on. But with all this corruption, one man stepped up and said, it's not okay. His name was Martin Luther. Next week, we dive into what he said, why it wasn't okay. But understand this, Martin Luther never wanted to stop being Catholic. Martin Luther loved the Catholic Church. He wanted to purify it. He wanted to change it. Just like the early Christians didn't want to be Christians, they wanted to be Jews. They wanted to be Messianic Jews. But when everything hits the fan, you think that the Catholic Church was ready to give up their power? Absolutely not. And all hell breaks loose. The reason you sit here in this church today is because of what went down around the 1500s. And that we will study. So what are we supposed to do with all this? That is basically, what, 1,500 years and 45 minutes. <laughs> what are we supposed to do with that? Here's what we must know. God has not abandoned His church. Every time the church gets too out of whack, the Holy Spirit kicks it back. Every time we swing from the pendulum, from monasticism to martyrdom, God is always moving and raising up a remnant that would come back and say, Jesus is central. Jesus is our focus. And they would get rid of the garbage. Are we part of that movement? Are we in this generation adhering to who Jesus really is? Are we defending scripture? Are we the ones that are going to stand up and say, no, the gospel is necessary. What are we doing in our current lives that we don't know and we seem to check off and say that it's okay? Do you understand that all these changes that occurred happened, what, over incremental period, over hundreds and thousands of years? Are we helping the cause or are we making it worse? Are we joining up with public opinion? Are we moving the church in a wrong direction? Or are we doing what pleases our Lord? These are all questions we must always ask ourselves. Because Jesus Christ died for a reason. And we can never let that slip. Amen?
Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for reminding us that you have moved all throughout history to love on your bride, the church. That you would not leave us or abandon us to the world. That, Lord, as much as we mess up, as much as we make mistakes, as much as we grow greedy and power hungry and we ruin everything, you always are there as a presence to make sure that we come back to you. Lord, if there is a place in our lives personally or as a church, as Bridgeway, or even as the Christian church in modern day, if we are out of your view, if we are out of line with your vision for us, would you move us back? Would you heal us that we might glorify you and praise you throughout the world? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.